All right, thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, Jeremy. I was going to pray, but I think Jeremy just led us in a song prayer to prepare for today. Um, if you'll take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Luke, that's where we'll begin here in just a moment. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, is where we'll begin. The title for the message today is, It's About the Sun. It's About the Sun. That's S-O-N. I know you know that. Hopefully Remember what it was about last week? It's, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. And that's in relation to the gospel. It's kind of in relation to the Bible when you and I open up and read God's word. On, on one, one side, it's, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. We know it's about God. It's about his son. It's about his, his program that we've seen in Luke's gospel. It's running just fine. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, went to the cross of Calvary, died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he has all authority today, working by his spirit through his church to restore a world that has been broken by sin. You and I, this is not about us. The good news is it is... It is for us. And what we're going to focus on today is we're going to see it's about the sun. And we're going to see today again kind of just, this is kind of the last day, I think, in this broad introduction, these broad brushstrokes that give us an idea of the trajectory of Luke's gospel. We're going to see God prepares his son. He endorses his son. He qualifies his son. He validates his son. He commissions his son. And to get this, and God prepares his people for who? His son. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, we see God, God prepares his son. Beginning in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the what? This Passover in verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, that's Jesus, they went up according to the custom in verse 43 and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in the temple. How old is he? Twelve years old. His parents didn't know it. Now, you, you know this story, right? Three days journey or a journey to Jerusalem from Nazareth, right? They leave. They go back and travel about a day's journey. They realize Jesus is not with them. Probably thought he was hanging out with cousins. They go back about a day's journey. They find him. How many days later? Three days. This is not the only time Jesus is going to be missing for three days, right? right? There in verse 46, after three days, they found him where? In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. In verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now watch this. Go to verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, can you, can you imagine how you three, I don't know. I've never gone three days with not knowing where one of my kids were. I can't imagine as a mom or dad what that was like. Can you, can you imagine how she would, have, she would have said son? Can you imagine how that would have come out of her mouth? I don't know, but I, you know, I kind of know, maybe. I don't know. So son, why have you treated us like so, right? Like, what the heck? Why did you do this to us? And behold, 
Your father, who's she talking about here? Joseph, your father and I, we have been searching for you in great distress. And in verse 49, Jesus, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Who is he talking about there? His heavenly father. God, we see in these first few passages, in fact, in verse 52, right, we see Jesus, he's growing in wisdom and stature with favor with God and man. God is preparing his son. Jesus is growing in his understanding of who he is. Whose son is he? He's the son of the Most High, right? Luke 1.32. Who is his father? The Most High is his father. Again, Luke 1.32. What does it mean? For you and I, it means that we can prepare to be amazed, right? About what's about to take place. Jesus, he's 12 years old. He's in the temple. You guys know this. The temple speaks of who? Points to who? Jesus. He's in there with the teachers, working through the scriptures that point to who? Him. What are they celebrating? Passovers, which points to, again, him. And again, this is, this is Jesus, the one that the law, the scriptures are written about. The promise from, from Abraham, the promised blessing, the promised king from David. He is the Messiah we saw last week. The one who will bring in this new era of God's forgiveness and work of his spirit. And God prepares his son. And God endorses his son in chapter 3. And we'll skip John the Baptist's ministry for right now. That's going to be what we'll end on so we can see how God is preparing us for his son. But if you'll go to verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21, we see that God not only prepares his son, but God endorses his son. And again, as you're going there, I guess you don't have to go far, do you? <laughs> Just a reminder, the reason I've stressed these last couple weeks that it's not about you, it's, 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 it's not about me, it's for us, is because the points today are really not about us. It's connected to Jesus Christ and God's preparation, his endorsing, his qualification. And I assure you, if I know sometimes in working through these things when it's not about us and it doesn't directly fit into kind of our, our system of what we want to focus on, we, we lose interest. But I'll tell you, in working through this stuff, this is what gives us hope. Because we're going to see you and I we're not qualified, right? <laughs> we have blown it, and we've given in to temptation. The reason that we have hope today is because of what God did in the person of Jesus Christ in preparing his son, endorsing his son, qualifying his son. This matters in our daily living and experiencing the hope and peace that is available from a real Lord and Savior. So in verse 21, and God endorsing his son, we read this, that when all the people were baptized, it's by John the Baptist there, when Jesus also had been baptized and was, and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am what? I am well pleased. Now why was Jesus baptized? John the Baptist was um, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Jesus, we know from what we've read so far um, and in the rest of our Bible, he's in no need of repentance, correct? But he is submitted to the Father's plan, right? I think the baptism of Jesus points us to um, what's ahead for Christ, but also the baptism of Jesus is a way for him to show himself identifying with you and I. 
We know according to Hebrews that Jesus, God in the flesh, was made like us in every way except without sin. We see here Jesus, he was baptized, the Spirit descends on him. The Father declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now is Jesus the only one in the Bible who's called the Son of God or a Son of God? We think of Adam, right? He is called God's Son. Could God say over Adam, Adam, I am well pleased with you. Could he say that over Adam? No, he could not. What about Israel? National Israel is, is called God's son. Could God say over Israel, Israel, I am so pleased with you. What about David or Solomon, the kings that according to his, his promise, he treated like sons and, and he was to them like a father. Could he say to David, David, you're, you're, just, you're just perfect in everything. Solomon, you just did fantastic. No, just our, our story, right? They were not well pleasing to God. God gives his, what, endorsement of Jesus, saying, this is my son, I am well pleased in him. God prepares his son, he endorses his son. Next we see in verse 23 that God qualifies his son. In verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, why does he put that in there? He's not really Joseph's biological son, like, his adopted son. Legally, he's in the family line of Joseph. Joseph is of the house of David. I'm going to read through this whole genealogy right now. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. If you go down to verse 36, Luke does something with this genealogy that, uh, that Matthew does not. Um, notice who we see this genealogy traced back to. Um, you'll notice some familiar names in verse 36, like Shem and Noah and Lamech. Um, there in verse 38, you'll notice Seth. But then the son of who? Adam. Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. We've already mentioned this briefly, but Luke's, he wants us to see in his gospel that Jesus is not only the Savior of Israel, but he's the Savior of the world. All who would come from, from Adam. He's a son of Adam, son of who? Son of God. And so Jesus, he's the son of the Most High, right? He's also the son of Adam. He is, as we know, he is fully God, but he is also fully man. It's why he is qualified, the only one qualified to be our mediator between God and man, our high, our high priest. Salvation, we will see, will reach to the end of the world. Right? This is not just Jesus for the nation of Israel. This is Jesus for the world. God prepares his son, he endorses him, he qualifies his son. Next, we see God validates his son. In chapter 4, we read this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit in, where? The wilderness. How long? Forty days being tempted by the devil. Now, I think of how all that we've mentioned so far, Adam and Israel, David and Solomon, I think of how God took them from one thing and placed them in another, and they were tested. You recall how that works? Adam was formed outside of the Garden of Eden, placed in the Garden of Eden. There was a test. Did he pass that test? No. Israel was taken 
from, actually redeemed, right? From one place, taken into the promised land. God arrested them in that land. There was a test. Did they pass that test? No. David was taken from like just being a shepherd boy, exalted to the chosen king of Israel. Um, did David pass that test with flying colors? No. Solomon, the one who was the king over God's nation when the temple was built and God dwelt with his people in a new and amazing way. He, and all these high hopes, he is the wise king who can rule over his people like a shepherd. Did he pass that test? You know Solomon's story, not even close. Here we see the son of God about to be tested, and this time by the devil, tempted. Beginning in verse 3, and again, if you know, First John chapter 2, you're familiar with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We see those temptations coming to Jesus here. Again, oftentimes when we come here, we look at ways in which we can kind of unite with Jesus and resist temptation, and that is good. There's a point to that. But the point also is that you and I have failed, like Adam and Israel and David and Solomon. Jesus is the one who does not. So in verse 3, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's the lust of the flesh there. Just satisfy your flesh. In verse 4, and Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy. What's the latter part of that passage? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The lust of the eyes in verse 5. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. So that certainly looks better than a bloody cross, doesn't it? Jesus in verse eight answers him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the pride of life in verse nine, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against the stone. The Satan, Satan here, of course, um, twisting and misusing scripture. Um, in verse 12, Jesus answers him. It is, it is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So God, we see in these temptations, Jesus, he is faithful, he resists. God validates his son. Jesus resists and reveals himself worthy. He is truly pleasing to God. Again, did anyone else, Adam, Israel, David, Solomon, they did not. The law pointing to Jesus, reminding us, showing us, He's the promised blessing from Abraham, the promised king from David, the Messiah who's bringing about a new age of forgiveness and work of God's spirit. He lives by God's word. He serves God alone. He does not put God to the test. God prepares his son, endorses, qualifies, validates. And last on this section, we see that God commissions his son. God commissions his son. And I use the word commission there because there's two ideas in commission. There's the sending and there's the empowering. And so God commissions his son in verse 14. 
in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. He, he taught there in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And we, we're going to just focus just on, on 18 and 19 in this passage, but this is our focus because this is the commission of Jesus. This is what he's about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to who? The poor. He has he has what? Sent me to proclaim what? Liberty to who? Captives, right? We're, this, is, this is where it connects, right? God's program's running just fine in a world that is broken by sin, right? And recovering of sight to those who are blind, to set at liberty those who are what? Oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, now, this is a quote out of Isaiah 61. Um, some of you know verse 19 is actually cut off in Luke mid-sentence. Do you know what comes next? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God. Now, there's the reason it's cut off right here is intentional, I believe. I think Luke is highlighting the fact that Jesus has shown up primarily here to bring about. He's, he's the commissioned deliverer. Right? He is, as the Messiah, the Christ, the King from David, the blessing from Abraham, he has, he has shown up to bring blessing and peace and hope and redemption to his people. We know, we know later he is also the commission and power and empowered judge of the world. And I can, we can separate those things kind of, saying that when Jesus shows up first time, it's for salvation. When he shows up the second time, it's for judgment. But those things are also not separated. <laughs> Because we're going to see that as Jesus shows up in Luke, it's also for judgment. And it's important for us to remember that, that God commissions his son to bring deliverance and to bring judgment. Isn't that what we believe about Jesus, our king and high priest, that he alone? I mean, that's what Paul points out in Acts, that Jesus, right, he is, he is affirmed this by raising from the dead a man who was crucified and appointed him as judge over the world. God prepares his son, endorses, qualifies, validates, commissions his son, and then our focus now returns to chapter 3 as God prepares his people for his son. And this is where you and I can, can join in and seeing the work of God, what he's doing, how people are responding, and how you and I can respond to what God has done. In chapter 3, Again, in verse 1, just kind of take note of some minor characters. Again, Tiberius, Caesar, over the Roman Empire, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod over Galilee, and there's some other people in there. I point this out again to remind us these are big people, right, in their world, but not really now. A reminder of how God's kingdom works, kingdom, how God's kingdom works. In verse 2, during the high priest hood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, if you've been reading the prophets lately, you'll notice a phrase in there that actually appears a lot in the prophetic books. What phrase is that? 
you know? The word of God came to John. If you turn to the first chapter of Isaiah, you'll see the, uh, you don't have, don't turn there because I'm going to mention a few things, but in the first chapter of Isaiah, you'll see the word of God came to, guess who? Isaiah. And then if you turn to Jeremiah, you'll see the word of God came to Jeremiah. Turn to the first chapter of Hosea, you'll see the word of God came to Hosea. Right? It's been, many of you know, in the intertestamental period, it's been hundreds of years since the word of God in this way has come through a prophet. And now the word of God comes again through the prophet John the Baptist. And notice in verse 3, him being faithful to declare the word, we read this, that he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Isaiah, in verse 4, it's Isaiah 40 that's quoted here showing us this indeed is the time of Israel's consolation or their deliverance, the time that the Messiah is bringing in this new era of forgiveness and the work of God's Spirit. Notice in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Notice verse 5. This, this kind of imagery happens a lot in the prophets. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become uh, level ways. In verse 6, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, if you, if you work through the prophets, you'll, you'll notice something happens when God shows up. And God's showing up can be described in different ways. I think Jeremy mentioned one of them this morning, the uh, God's visitation, right? The day of God's visitation, the day of the Lord, the arrival of his kingdom. When he, when he arrives, when he works in this way, it disrupts the, orders of, the order of things. That's probably a better way to, to say that. But it really messes things up. You look at the prophets, he points to the way that nature is reordered. He points to also the reordering of people. Isn't that what happens when God shows up? It happens in my life. When he shows up, things are rearranged. I think of what the people accused the apostles in the, first church, the early church of doing. Remember, they said these people are turning the world what? Upside down. Anyone say, say like that needs to happen today? That could be a good thing. Things be reordered a little bit. John's baptism. We see it's a baptism of repentance. He's calling for a changed heart, a changed mind, we're going to see, that leads to changed behavior. In verse 7, he says this. He said, therefore, to the crowds, and Luke, by the way, if you read through his gospel, these first few chapters too, he talks about the crowds and he talks about the people. The crowds are often kind of in a negative or questionable light. The people are oftentimes in a positive light. The people are the ones Luke points to as those that are re responding to the preaching of the gospel. The crowds are often those who are, there's, there's a question mark. We're not, gonna, we're not sure if they're going to be responding or not. And so in verse 7, he said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, when I read this this week, I guess I always thought that John the Baptist, he called those, you know, those deserving Pharisees. I, th I thought he called them brood of vipers. I didn't realize that the crowds that were coming out to be baptized by him, he called them a brood of vipers and said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
I can't imagine, like, if we had, like, a high attendance Sunday and, and you guys packed the place, and I was like, why did you guys come? You know, you're all scum. Uh, would you guys hate me if I did that? I think you probably... <laughs> why is he doing this? I think for the same reason that people do it today and sometimes needfully do it. Look at what he says in verse 8. His instruction is, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? Probably a good warning. Don't, don't just walk into this river and think that you got wet and so that's good. What has John been commissioned by Almighty God to do? To proclaim the message of what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins, right? A repentance where your heart is changed before God and your mind is changed in a way that what else is changed? Our behavior, our actions, our life. And so notice in verse 9, here's the metaphor John uses. He says, now, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is what? It's cut down and thrown into the fire, again, to make room for trees that will bear fruit. We have to remember Jesus is coming for salvation and judgment. We do see the salvation now and the judgment that will be later, but we also see it simultaneously working together. Now, again, why is John so harsh? Now, I would suggest to you, if you look back at the prophetic word, Prophetic word was often harsh. What accompanied, how do I say this? What accompanied God's prophetic word of judgment? When you think of God's word of judgment, especially in the prophets, what else came along with God's word of judgment? An opportunity to respond and repent. Do you remember Jonah's message to Nineveh? You remember his little sermon? I've memorized that one, I think. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but I think I remember it. 40 days and then destruction. The word of the Lord came to Jonah to take to Nineveh, that wicked city. Very simple sermon. 40 days and you're done. That's, that's, that was his message. What did Nineveh do? They heard the message. They repented. And what happened? We're reminded that God is full of mercy and loving kindness, willing to relent from disaster when people repent to his message. This is why John the Baptist here is so harsh. Notice what the crowd does in verse 10 in response to his prophetic message in verse 10. Right, and this is, let me, let me say this before we, we're going to look at verse 10, 12, and 14. We're going to see the response, and this is what, this is what genuine repentance looks like, right? God's word, it affects our heart. It, it causes us to to change our heart and mind in a way that also leads to our actions and our behavior being changed, right? It, sim simple goes back, it simply goes back to loving God and loving others. When we're repentant before the Lord, right, it changes how we view God and how we respond to Him. It changes how we view others and how we respond to others. So notice what we see in verse 10. And the crowds asked Him, what, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Do, do you see the connection between, again, caring about God, caring about others, and being willing to have that, that change of heart that changes your behavior? In verse 12, 
tax collectors also came to be baptized, you know kind of their stigma, and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, we'll collect no more than you're authorized to do. Now, did Jesus at this time do away with the unjust tax system or the Roman oppression? And so we get, we get some insight into what the ministry and the mission of Jesus is, right? It's not to really upset the whole world order at this time, but members of his kingdom, their world is going to be rearranged. And how they operate in that system is going to be aligned with, we're going to see the coming Christ in his kingdom. In verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Again, John the Baptist proclaiming this message of repentance, calling for a changed heart and changed actions. In verse 15, we see this, that the people, and not the crowds, but the people who are responding, the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning whether, whether John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered, and he's, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. Now look at those verses uh, 15 and 16, we see some things that are connected there that normally we don't think of being connected. So we see water and spirit and fire. What do, what do all of those things have in common? Again, we're just kind of scratching the surface today broadly on these things, but uh, they purify water the spirit fire and refinement right jesus he is going he's the messiah the christ bringing about this new age of forgiveness and the work of the spirit where god's spirit is going to purify and refine his people ezekiel 36 listen to this so good ezekiel 36 i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Do we need that today? I don't know about you. I, I need that. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, think of John's message of repentance and getting people ready for the Christ. He is the one that, because again of his death and his resurrection and ascension, has made it possible to receive this renewing work of the Spirit where we confess our sins to him. He forgives us of our sins. He washes us. He truly cleanses us. He fills us, empowers us with the Holy Spirit so that our heart and our mind that are now connected to him and his kingdom is reflected in our behavior and how we relate to others. In verse 17, his, his winnowing fork, you know what that is? It's, it's a little green acres fork. I don't know anything else that has that thing in there, like the thing that you, the devil usually has it, but it's not his, right? It's, it's connected to this imagery here. Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor. What's on the threshing floor? It's wheat, right? But what's he gonna do? He's going to, He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. 
So the wheat is the good stuff, it's the wheat that goes into the barn. The chaff is, is the, it's, it's the worthless stuff that's not good for anything. It, it remains and is destroyed. So notice what we see. His winnowing fork, he's come for salvation and judgment. It is in, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into the barn. Remember, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, to proclaim, what? The year of the Lord's favor. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire in the day of vengeance of our God, Isaiah 61. Committed, commissioned to be Savior and judge. In verse 18, last verse we'll read out of Luke today. So with many other exhortations, he preached. What kind of news? Good news to God's people. And I really think, I mean, this is great. It's great news. It is good news. But it kind of, if you're like me and you live in America and all of this stuff, has much of this sounded great and fantastic? Or has it felt a little harsh and condemning and, yeah. Why is John the Baptist, why is he so bold? Why, why is Jesus, you know, when, when we really read the Gospels and look at what Jesus is saying and doing, you guys know most of the time it's kind of offensive. Why does he do that? Why did the apostles do it? Why does Paul do it? Why do a lot of preachers today, you know, pound their pulpit and, and point their fingers and say, you scum and all that stuff? Why, why does that happen? And I'm not saying for people who misuse it and, and do it wrongly, but why did even Billy Graham, right, in, in a way, do those types of things? It's because of this. It's very simple. Dude, the world is messed up. We are, we are sick, right? We are so sinfully broken beyond our self-repair, so much so sometimes that we're not even aware of it. God's word says, this is God's word. We, we know this. Judgment is coming soon. That's like, a, that's like a major thing the Bible says that you and I as believers, we know. In fact, in Sunday school, we can kind of talk about it. But oftentimes when we're looking for encouragement and those things that we do need throughout the week, how often in our, in our mind is, you know what? God's judgment is coming soon. <laughs> and, it, and it really is. And so John preaches in, in this way to remind us God's his judgment is coming soon because of our sin. Are you sick of your sin? Because in this warning of judgment there, there's also God's grace to respond to his message. And if you're sick of your sin, the Bible says that salvation is near, right? That Jesus Christ has, has made a way for that to be renewed, for that to be forgiven. Jesus prepared, right? endorsed, qualified, validated, took your sin, my sin to the cross of Calvary where he paid a price that we couldn't pay. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Three days in a grave, rose from the grave according to scripture, conquering sin and death once and for all now ascended at the right hand of the Father, has authority today by his Spirit and through his church, the preaching of his word to call you to repentance.
to recognize there's something wrong in my heart, in my mind that I can't change, and the only thing that I can do is throw myself at the mercy of God and ask for his cleansing work. You know, you can do that today if you've not made a decision before to trust Christ as your Savior. This is the day, and even in these moments where you can do that, you can turn to Jesus, the one who has been prepared and appointed and commissioned and empowered. In fact, God is preparing you right now. It's why you're, you're working through these things and even considering these things. And I would, I would appeal to you, will you let God's Spirit work? And will you go to Him? Will you confess your sins? Will you receive His Holy Spirit? Let Him purify you, cleanse you, give you a new heart and a new mind whereby you will follow Him with your life. And for you and I as Christians, and I'll call Jeremy back up here at this time, with you and I as Christians, I would suggest to you, I man, these are the things that we ought to be reminded of over and over and over again. Man, it's not about you and how well you can do. It's not about me and how, how well I can do. Thankfully, we have blown it so often, nobody can even keep track, right? It's just, we're a mess. But Jesus, he is the son of the most high. He is the one, again, qualified, empowered. That which made us right with him when we trusted in him as our Savior and Lord, you know, he continues to work. He is still our high priest. He is still our mediator between God and man. He's our advocate before the Father, praying for us, interceding for us. The work of his spirit still renews our heart, gives us desires to follow him, and then enables us to do the very things that we can't do on our own, to live a true life of repentance and faith. It changes how we live in a world that is, that is broken beyond repair. I'm going to ask you guys to stand during this time. I'm going to read just a few passages of Scripture, and then we'll close with a song. Romans 5 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Hebrews 2 and 4 says this, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.